Welcome to the Chatterbox with your host, Nicole Parchani. On this episode, I will be talking with my favorite climate activist, Riddhi Samtami, about her passion for the environment and how it began, her career in environmental protection, her recent TED Talk with Northeastern, and how you can get involved in advocating for islanders on the front lines of climate change. Enjoy. For me, you are like my Greta. Like, you know, like there's the Greta, but I'm like, nah, my Greta is Riddy. Like Riddy is my Greta. Like Riddy, like who was Greta? Riddy has been doing this longer than Greta. I'm like, I don't know who this girl is. I think you got the wrong one because this girl <laughs> over here is my climate change activist. <laughs> oh oh but, my God, that's literally going to bring me to tears. <laughs> don't cry. Uh, you were trying to you were almost gonna bring me to tears earlier but I guess like for you where where did that drive for climate change or just like activism for islanders begin I said it I, I tried to capture it as best that I could um in my TED talk so some of it will be a little bit of a regurgitation um, wait where can people watch your TED talk first before before we even spoil anything <laughs> oh yeah yeah so um because so Northeastern University picked a, a handful of students and alumni um, for their annual TED Talk, and I was luckily selected. And they released it on YouTube. So if you search my name and like TEDx Northeastern, like it should definitely pop up. Yeah, they released it. I unfortunately, due to COVID, I wasn't able to kind of like, you know, really say it on a stage in front of a speaking audience, but I recorded it in St. Martin and it made it even more powerful and meaningful. So um, yeah, so it was a really awesome opportunity. But in there, I, I not only talk about climate change on small islands, uh, but particularly St. Martin and, and how I got into it and why I care. And that really started <laughs> our old stomping grounds, Learning Unlimited, where uh, we requ were required to get um, community service hours. And the easiest way to kind of get a clump of community service hours was to do a beach cleanup because you'd go there early morning and you'd pick up trash for like two and two and a half hours. And then you'd get like five hours just by, you know, just by being there. So I was like, oh, yeah. And, and back then I was like, I want to get all of the community service hours. And so I just went to all of these beach cleanups. And one day, the International Coastal Cleanup that was organized by the Pride Foundation annually, which this year I am organizing, which is like full circle. Sweet. Um, yeah, uh, they, um, yeah they, they were handing out this awesome deal for students, like five hours of community service. You could come and show up at six o'clock in the morning. And it was on a Sunday. So I told my dad, I was like, hey, I need you to come pick, drop me at Mullet Bay at 6 o'clock. And I woke him up 5.30 in the morning. And he was probably so grumpy, Harsha, I swear to God. And he was like, I don't understand why you're going to do all these beach cleanups. You're not a garbage woman. Why are you collecting trash? Like, you know, like, what are you trying to do with your life? Like, become a garbage woman? And he was just, like, so upset. And I could tell, right? I woke him up on a Sunday morning <laughs> for him to drop me to the sleep deprivation. <laughs> yeah. For what? His daughter's picking up trash. Did not understand that at all and why it was important to me. And so I went to this cleanup and I was like so upset. 
and I was picking up this trash and I was like, I'm not a garbage woman. Like, why am I picking up all this trash? And I was like finding the most random things like diapers, flip flops, like just so much like, you know, bottles, cans, so many of them. And I was like, they're like, why aren't people disposing of these in the trash bin? Like, that seems like common sense. Why, yeah. why, why are we doing this in the hot sun? Like, why are the kids picking up so much trash? And then I ended up looking to my left and my right, and there weren't trash bins on the beach. And that's when I, you know, contacted the organizers of the cleanup from the Pride Foundation. At the time, Jadir Ravine and Ruben Thompson. And I was like, hey, I'm a student. I just wanted to really understand, like, why do you think there's so much trash here? Like, you know, why don't we just put more bins? I feel like it would solve the problem. And they were like, you know what? That's actually one of the biggest issues that we are currently uh, working on is to get and secure funding to place more bins on the beach. And I was like, great, I would love to get involved because I need to prove my dad wrong. <laughs> like actually uh, uh, fix this problem. And then I think through working with them, like I really didn't come with a passion of, you know, protecting the animals, like the, the marine organisms and stuff like that. I didn't really have a passion for any of that. It was working with these leaders who educated me uh, about the importance of this that I then gained the understanding and decided to be the voice for the youth. And I was like, why don't more people care about this? This is important. Let me join the bandwagon to spread awareness. And that's when I started recognizing that these people were voicing their concerns, but they also led by example. And that's kind of how I wanted to follow in their footsteps. And that's kind of what I did. And then by, you know, by doing enough cleanups and by seeing, you know, the day we got funding, I went to government, you know, I stood in parliament in front of all of these politicians and, you know, I was 13 years old at the time. And I said, Hey, I'm 13 <laughs> years old. Like, I know we need to have garbage bins where are the garbage bins and so yeah like this seeing, is obvious you know obviously I didn't carry that weight all by myself like it was really like uh, the leaders the environmental leaders of the NGOs at the time who really pushed and advocated for these things but having seen change from such a young age right I went there and placed the bins myself on Mullet Bay and I was like wow this is possible being 13 years old and being able to see the impact of your actions really defined my like confidence in the abilities that I had, right? If I could do this on a 37 square mile island, what can I accomplish in the world, you know? And then that's when my dreams really grew. And I was like, I want to be, you know, I really want to champion this issue. I want to represent St. Martin on the international platform. And I want to learn more. I want to gain the knowledge and expertise. And that really like jump-started my passion in environmental stewardship. I will definitely say I do think you were a role model, even for just going to the beach cleanups. Like I remember every time I went and it was also just, yeah, let's get some community service hours <laughs> to just get this taken care of. But you were like always there, like always there in like the pride blue shirts, just like <laughs> ready to give a helping hand. And so for me, like I just always was like, oh, yeah, ready, you know, ready is a course like she wins all of these awards for environmental activism I'm like yeah of course like that that's pretty what do you mean but to hear like the reason you did all of that was like my dad was so like he woke up upset one day and was like why are you doing this it's crazy because like for me you just it was just something that just seemed natural like you just always from my perspective was just this champion for the environment and I remember the first time I realized like 
how big of a deal climate change was. And for me, it was watching, I think it's the movie was called like Indis- Indespicable Truth by Al Gore. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. But that movie, I remember there was a scene where he was showing like the predictions of the rise in sea level. And I was like, okay, I know on most maps, St. Martin is never there. But like I'm on this map, St. Martin is for sure not going to be there. And I remember like leaving that movie kind of like scarred because I was like, wait a minute. Like I live here. Like, what do you mean? Like, 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 am I the only one that realized like, hey, this is a problem that we may just like our country will just be submerged. We will be Atlantis pretty much if we don't do something about this and for me it was like clear as day from that moment on that this was something that people needed to fight about but oddly enough like not many people in the community seem to care that this was a problem that we eventually are going to have to be dealing with yeah I think that that was also something that like I I didn't understand like it took me a really long time and I I on like it almost felt as if these organizations were putting in so much work into advocating for an issue that fell onto deaf ears, you know, and yeah. I, and, and it just didn't make any sense to me. And, and that's when I was like, okay, I need to get more. Like also I was a child, right? So people also took what I said in, in layman's terms and, and didn't really take me seriously. And that's when I was like, no, I want to pursue this. I want to get a background in this. I want to come from an area of knowledge and expertise so that the next time I say something, people will take me seriously. And now, you know, you know, convincing my parents that this is the field I wanted to go into was also somewhat of a hurdle. They didn't understand it. There was a lot of vague and ambiguous language to any careers and environmentalism. And they were like, you know, how are you going to make money? Like, how are you going to sustain yourself? You're not going to be a garbage woman yeah. forever, you know? <laughs> and, and, um, it was honestly a little bit, you know, they supported me no matter what, but I will say that it didn't come without a fight. Not a fight, but it didn't come with like some serious discussion. We are brought to you by Empower You. Applying for college or moving abroad to the US, Canada, or the Netherlands? Not sure what school offers financial aid to Caribbean students? Looking for scholarship resources or just someone to talk to about the experience and get guidance? Check out Empower You. It's a nonprofit founded by yours truly with the values to empower, educate, and expand the opportunities for young Caribbean and minority students. Empower You offers college fact sheets, college application and resume proofreading and editing services, mentorship, and help with college applications or just figuring life out after high school. They secretly offer tutoring services too, but I didn't say that. All of their main services are free. For more information or if you're interested in donating to this fabulous organization, check out their website at empoweru.online. That's empoweru with the letter U, not the word, dot online. How was it for you when you did move to like Northeastern and you were talking about your experience, like being an Islander to Americans that don't, I feel like in America, like climate change is a debatable thing, which to me is crazy. Like as an Islander, I'm like, no, this is not up for debate. Like this is something that will affect my people. I guess, how was it for you when you came here and like you had to deal with people that don't believe that, you know, climate change even is real? I think 
I think it was so many different things. It was acclimating not only to just the climate of Boston physically and mentally, but also just the types of people that exist. And I, and I chose to surround myself with individuals who were like-minded. Um, like I really just blocked out that noise because at the end of the day, it, sometimes I would really let that affect me and I'd be in tears. And I'm like, I don't understand why this concept that is scientifically proven is something that you cannot grasp. But yeah, I, I chose to minor in environmental studies and I surrounded myself with people who are equally as passionate. So um, I found out the struggles that Boston was facing, that a developed country like the United States and the impact that uh, climate change had on cities, right? Like Hurricane Sandy had happened in New York. And I saw climate change adaptation and mitigation through different lenses, which was really eye opening because I came, you know, as much as other people came with their biases, I came with my own biases. And I said, no, climate change is not real for you. It's real for me because we're going to be underwater. You're not going to make like feel these effects. And I honestly, it was, it was quite a learning experience to really understand the breadth of this. This isn't you know, the climate crisis isn't another issue. It's an era that spans not just small islands, but like the entire global community residing in everywhere. And that's when I made it my mission in college to understand climate change from different perspectives. And my focus was mainly in developing countries. And obviously my concentration within that was small islands. And that, that's what I made my expertise. But, you know, through my scholarship at Northeastern, I was really fortunate to travel the world, really. And for example, I studied climate change and policy in Southeast Asia and Indonesia. So I went to Singapore, Jakarta and Bali. And I got to see how climate change is affecting those areas of the world. Jakarta is literally sinking because of land subsidization, like like, you know, land, because they've been extracting groundwater faster than it can be replenished, the land is literally collapsing because the water tables are, are empty. You know, Indonesia is trying to relocate their capital because Jakarta, which is the capital of Indonesia, is sinking. Um, and in Singapore, which is also an island completely surrounded by water, doesn't, it, it is clumped in small island developing states, but it's by no means developing, and it's one of the most uh, architecturally advanced islands, um, how are they going about you know, mitigating the adverse effects and adapting to climate change? And they were like far beyond the years of any infrastructural like urbanized community. So I got to learn how they're taking climate change seriously. And then Bali was very similar to St. Martin. It was a small island, also heavily dependent on tourism, also sea level rise and hurricanes were big issues. So, so that was really cool. I, I really made it my mission to go out and understand Indonesia's problems. And then I went to India and I found out, you know, the changing of the monsoon patterns were affecting uh, agriculture uh, for farmers and farmer suicide went up 15% in 2019 because, you know, the crops didn't grow at the time because the monsoon came early or it came later and they couldn't deliver on their crops. Uh, for these bigger companies and they couldn't handle the pressure and they just committed suicide. So how and climate so change fortunate. Yeah. It's affecting so many areas of the world. And then I took all of that relevant um, experience talking to the farmers on hand, you know, uh, what is the science and the innovation going to enhancing, you know, fertilization and understanding weather patterns, you know, so that's when I took an interest in climate modeling and the scientific uh, predictions of 
climate change? How do you understand uncertainty? You know, based on these different emission scenarios, how how should we create adaptation and mitigation uh, strategies and frameworks for different different communities? From what you saw in those scenarios, especially in the developments that Singapore was using, did you see any of those methods being applicable to St. Martin? What I saw that was done incredibly well was mapping um, Mm. and surveys and studies and analyses in order to come up with frameworks for resilience and infrastructure what was the most impactful was the studies and the information and the data collected. And that's why I'm a huge advocate for having those surveys mapping here in St. Martin, because in order to really understand how we can adapt, we need to understand the topography of the land, right? And we need to do those scenario modeling, you know, with with data and computer science to foresee and eliminate the uncertainty. We want to be able to make informed decisions based on fact and evidences mm-hmm. than, you know, just intuition and a vague idea of what is right. But I think reversing global warming is one of the biggest challenges of our time, not just coming from a small island, but our global community. And, you know, with each year that passes, we're facing more extreme drought- droughts, especially in places like in India, we're experiencing floods, wildfires, storms, heat waves. Mm-hmm. And- I can tell you the Pacific Northwest was literally up in flames last year. And I, yeah, I, it was very smoky outside. I'm from lived experience. It was not cute. And I, I remember I went to Thailand as part of a, uh, so Michigan has different like organizations. I'm sure uh, Northeastern has similar programs, but for one, it was like a collaboration between different majors as well as engineers. And so it was called, it's called Blue Lab and they have programs in different countries. Then that's like, they're like project teams. So I was on the project team for Thailand. And one of the big issues that they're facing is flooding and flooding mitigation that's brought about from deforestation. All of the rain just starts to flood the cities and it has nowhere to go. And then because all of the dirt from the mountains are filling in the drains and everything just it clogs the entire system. And then it's just not a pretty situation for anybody. And so one of the big like issues that local firemen were doing was literally digging dirt out of the sewers because they were just getting clogged and compact with dirt from all of the flooding over time and all the garbage that would like trickle into these systems from the different like water bodies and as an engineer like just talking to the officials about like how this was a huge problem for them and they needed to know where the floods were happening where things were getting clogged so that not only it could help local responders but just help communities because yeah local business would lose all of their business because it's just a lot of like small shops and marketplaces but if it's completely flooded then that's all of their inventory just gone Um, And there's only so much like they can do in advance as well. Like as much as they'll know, like, okay, the flood's coming. It's going to be here in three hours. They can still only put up so many sandbags to protect their, you know, establishments. And yeah, like these are real people who are, you know, just grinding every day, just trying to make a living, just trying to live a good life. And, And the environment is making that difficult because of decisions we all make every day. Exactly. And like, I think that it's so interesting to see how climate is an underlying layer for for life to exist. You know what I mean? And 
Um, even here, we're seeing coastal communities shrink due to sea level rise and, you know, the decimation of wildlife and, and so much more. But um, places like Thailand, like uh, coastal communities in general or small islands, we're incredibly vulnerable. We're more vulnerable than other areas and land masses because we are geographically remote. We are low lying. Uh, we're completely surrounded by water and we have like small population within the socioeconomic context. Every single heat wave, hurricanes, like small rise in sea level, like has a microcosm of effects. You know, it stops our economy, our single pillar economy of tourism. Like, you know, we are completely halted. But places like Thailand, I feel like within that range, right, like their entire livelihoods are immediately halted because of this natural event. And yeah, it's like Mother Nature being Mother Nature because of things we're doing to her, not because she wants to flood humans, but humans are making it difficult for Mother Nature to do what it would otherwise naturally do. But it's been interesting because I, I know, like, especially with wildfires, like, I think the Trump administration was saying, like, oh, you need to cut down more trees because one of the issues is because the trees are growing too close. And so when it catches in one fire zone, it's like spreads easily across. I have no idea, but it's just insane. I feel like how people can still deny climate change when it's like, well, even in America, places are getting hit with hurricanes like sandy for example or like and clearly the west coast is suffering terrible terrible drought like california can is in desperate need of water like all the time and it's like how are we not like is that not a red flag like, <laughs> like is this not are you guys not seeing the flags because i'm seeing them like <laughs> i honestly i honestly think climate change isn't really like a scientific or technical technological problem anymore like we've had the basis figured out for a while now. At this point, meaningful climate action is all about power. I, I really think so. And some That's of the why most I won't burn me. Yeah, I think that yeah, I just think that some of the most powerful people and companies in the world are like actively working to delay climate action so that they can keep making, you know, unimaginable amounts of money <laughs> for the way that they've been doing for decades. Climate change has been a very slow process and it has been exacerbated by the anthropocene, like, you know, human, human age, human actions. Yeah, it's definitely when I, I agree, like I get mad sometimes when people are like, oh, like you should be vegan, which is like, I feel you. People should stop eating cows for sure. But it's like, yeah, what, at what point are companies going to? be like yes we are responsible we have the power and influence to actually make change we're just not doing it because we don't want to because it's not convenient to our bottom line and so unfortunately i can't sacrifice a couple billion dollars because i want to go on my mega yacht this summer i don't know like yeah but i definitely see a huge momentum and a huge change and movement, you know, since I, and I talk about this all the time, uh, you know, when I went to school to study this, there was a lot of like grassroots power and grassroots energy, but now we're really seeing that trickle down into larger companies who are taking action. And the power of grassroots has been so far 
a wide reaching that, you know, companies are actually getting shamed if they don't follow a code of corporate social responsibility yeah. or environmental social governments, right? Like ESG right now is one of the hottest things that people are tapping into from an investment perspective, like especially in venture capital. The startup that I was working for literally is now catching on fire Phoenix tailings because uh, in order to power the clean energy movement, we need metals, right? In order to do that. And, you know, how do we make, how do we cut emissions from our supply chain in order to meet these targets of net zero? And how do we curb carbon emissions? Like that's one of the biggest and hottest things right now. Yeah, it is. I, I, I 100% have so much energy for the upward trajectory that we're seeing. And I really think that there is being strides made within this uh, lifetime to cut carbon emissions and not even just go net zero. They're like talking about, you know, net negative. We do like, while there are a lot of, there is a lot of dead weight. I think we're, we're definitely making some positive strides. I think so. I definitely think so. And I, I do think the tech industry especially has been trying to make pushes to be more climate conscious. And I know, especially at Microsoft, they're all about getting to zero carbon emissions for all the products that we produce. And a lot of like, I, I know a lot of our packaging because I have had opportunities to speak to some of the execs for devices. And I asked them like straight up, like, how what are we doing to make our products more sustainable? Because I mean, what's the whole point of having a mission to empower the world when there may not be a world to empower in the future, you know? And so they definitely take that stuff very seriously. And I know they've been making strides and just making packaging recycled, you know, and not having as much plastic wrapping products that is unnecessary. Or can you switch that with paper that's actually recyclable? And how do we create programs even within our company and in our office spaces that champions the goals that we're trying to have and so the building that my office is actually in is like a green certified building and it, it's yeah. not even something that I notice walking in that's like oh what's so different about this building than another building but it is doing something that's better for the environment just by me choosing to work in that building because it's a more you know sustainable or eco-friendly building it's such low-hanging fruit yeah exactly like, it's such such low hanging fruit. So I, uh, before this, I was doing consulting at a management consulting firm, BCG, Boston Consulting Group. And I was on the sustainability team where they were trying to actually, like my project was not consulting with other clients. We were treating BCG as our clients. How do we create our own sustainability framework and programs? And I will tell you, it is very difficult for multinational, like, corporations like BCG and Microsoft that have headquarters everywhere and like offices everywhere to, you know, think about the emissions from like, you know, there, there are like three scopes, scope one, scope two, scope three. And one of the easiest ways to cut a bulk of our emissions was by just having renewable energies for all of our offices, LED lights, you know, um, and I think, you know, having the, the, what was it? The certified lead, lead certified buildings, yeah. like, you know, to quote. Yeah, yeah. So I hear you on that. And I think that's that's phenomenal. 
like we use a lot like a lot of our like eating utensils in the office are all compostable all the cups are compostable and it's just like how like why isn't this just the standard like why doesn't why isn't everything we use compostable why isn't all of our containers just biodegradable they exist they're out there just go talk to people make some deals like and it's crazy because it's like i go to another place and they're giving me styrofoam and i'm just like cringing in my heart and soul because i'm like what what why are you doing this to me don't you want my money you're making this difficult for me to want to support your company (laughs) like like just make it green (laughs) no i so hear you like fortunately we have already all of the solutions to reverse global warming and they are economical what we're missing is the power to implement them and the political will not only from you know top down but also from establishments and business owners who are choosing not to to make these conscious decisions and and i think the really really like what i hone in in my ted talk is like the key to reversing global warming is people power i just think that if we start this domino effect of spreading awareness and leading by example you just create a more consciously aware community that starts to follow in your footsteps and I think I'm a product of that. I think that you're a product of that. Like people like you and me are doing great things. We're using our talents, our skills to spread awareness about a topic that's so meaningful and real. I think, yeah, coming together in large movements, that's called collective action, you know? And it's it's a real phenomenon that can have a really huge impact. And, and we've already seen that happen, right? Like the pressure for these corporations to create ESG uh, frameworks for their companies like that came uh, there there's actually a really cool principle it's called the 3.5 percent principle it's mm. called the 3.5 percent rule and it's like the best way to conceptualize and measure the power of the, of the people is uh with this rule and it's by this research analyst her name is erica chenowitz and her research she did a a research project and it analyzed the last 100 years and she found that it only takes 3.5 percent of a population's participation to force a political change and Mm. she saw that with campaigns no single i think it was like voter campaign uh for a specific bill or a lobby uh failed if they achieve 3.5% of participation from uh, that group or entity. And um, I think that Erica, well, Erica thinks, not I think, but (laughs) Erica thinks that this can be achieved on a smaller scale too, with even changes made from your local grocer or your like coffee shop. If 3.5% of the customers who went there complained about the plastic utensils or the styrofoam packaging, that company would then more than likely make change. a change yeah and i agree because i don't even complain half the time i'll just like grunt in my head and be like oh shit but i won't actually be like excuse me sir could you not do this please because i want to support you but you're making it hard for me but you're right i do think that's interesting and i wonder i think people that complain now i'm just like i'm thankful because they're that part of the 3.5 percent no, honestly, I shouldn't it was be doing really that. cool. No, you definitely should voice those concerns. And I think that's the same thing we need to do for like, that's what protesting is, right? It's like voicing your concerns, but on smaller scales to have that kind of trickle down uh, collective action effect. I, the, the, the one example that always stands out to me was the Amazon climate justice program 
that was started by the employees. Like, you know, like Amazon now consolidates packaging and does not, well, tries their hardest to reduce like plastic. And that all started by their employees. Just 1% of Amazon employees signed a petition and complained about their unsustainable means of of um, delivering goods. You're right. Employees really have power, especially when companies do ask, like, how do you how are you guys feeling? And you're like, actually, Bezos, I'm not feeling all this plastic. You'd be surprised how other people would be like, yeah, you know what? She he or she is right. We should do something about that. Because half the yeah. time, I feel like most of it is not even intentional. It's sometimes just like, well, this is just the way things have been. And no one's spoken up about, well, hey, I actually don't agree with this. I I completely agree. And I, it also started at BCG when we were working there. Like when we were deciding to do this um, internal program, I was just astounded by the number of consultants who came and like voiced out on, on how unhappy they were with the company that they were working with and how, because flying is basically the bulk of our emissions. There weren't enough options to take other modes of transportation, specifically in Europe because it wasn't offered. And that was one of the biggest things that employees were like, look, I'm down to make our clients happy, but I don't want to fly in first class and emit so much CO2. My carbon footprint is so high just because of the way in which this company is, is, is structured. And so by offering transportation via the train or having the option not to take first class and economy for shorter flights, you know, for longer travel, yeah. separate conversation. Uh, for long haul flights versus short haul, short haul flights. It was really interesting. And I was so surprised with the number of people who were okay with not taking the perks of flying first class because they cared so much about their carbon footprint. And I think that even in New Zealand, New Zealand, which is like one of the biggest examples that I always study, they pass science based laws immediately after um, something that seems obvious pass science based laws. <laughs> You'd be surprised. They they passed, they had science-based targets and laws. In Erica's uh, work, she says 3.5% of their population. Once they hit that 3.5% population limit, part, population participation, it was it was more than likely to occur. And I think that I'm I'm really keen on, on that example following suit in the Caribbean because our voices need to be heard collectively. I think St. Martin is definitely a work in progress. Uh, especially in the past 10 years, this is the most number of students who are educated and young professionals who have come back to work and bring their talents back to the island. Like, I think it's a super exciting time to be here and to create impact because change is actually like realistic and like tangible you know and there's a lot that we can do like there's so much that we can do and it doesn't and like you said it's low-hanging fruit it's really not difficult changes that need to be implemented and for me the fact that they even passed banning plastic i'm like well finally um, at least it's a step in the right direction and i am appreciative that they've even done that and for me i never understood why we never even like just made solar energy or just renewables standard, especially given our beautiful location under the sun, 24 seven, 365 days of the year, we're getting at least eight hours of peak sunlight and we just don't use it. And it's like, come on, 
we we can do this. We we've got what it takes. We have smart people that are from St. Martin. I feel like we play it down, but we have the talent. It's just like like you said, we need the power to implement those things. But I do believe grassroots is definitely what it takes, and I try to do that with Empower You. Just I'm gonna do what I can because I believe. Like this is important. This is extremely important. I think grassroots power is succeeding where nothing else has for decades, especially for the climate change movement. Like I really and truly, I'm a huge believer of that. And it is the first domino in like the sequence of transformative change. And that power needs to be built and it needs to grow. I guess I'm curious, what do you think like people could do in their life that would actually like from the research you've done, have a greater impact? So if there was like certain decisions that regular people could make that you would know, okay, if I stop doing this, it is more impactful than maybe doing that? Yeah, I think that there's there are ways in which individuals can can take take action. I think one of the biggest things is carpooling, diet. Also, I think just zero, like going and trying to consume less the culture of consumption is just so so high and especially in the states it's so easy prime people just like my boyfriend tells me the ridiculous amount of packages that he sees on the daily people just buy and 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 buy i'm sure people are buying right now as we're talking they've made guap it's like addictive it's crazy i mean i'm not gonna say that i'm like picture perfect over here. I think fast fashion is one of my biggest vices as an environmental, uh, like advocate and environmental, like, you know, activist, I think we do need to put pressure on organizations and and businesses to make, you know, the green economy more affordable. Like I think access to affordable, sustainable alternatives is still yet to come. Um, there's a big price premium on sustainable clothing. Um, and sometimes that's really without my budget, right? So what I choose to do is just, uh, I'm working on purchasing less and buying less, but then I'm like, oh, that's such a really cute dress. And oh, it's summer and I need to buy like more baby <laughs> suits. It's, it's a struggle. Like I I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm saying that I'm conscious of just it. Just being I'm conscious trying, of it, exactly. And I'm trying to do better. I think I do really well with recycling and metal lands on St. Martin. It's been really, really awesome with implementing and making recycling a little bit more accessible. But I think the people who have the power to regulate this is people with political political affluence and political will. They know right? who they and are. They listening right now. You know who you are. Do something. <laughs> <laughs> that I is, honestly yeah. think that. I, I, I wish they opened a thrift store on the island for sure. That would be nice. I feel like people don't buy secondhand clothes on the island. Like there's a stigma against it. There's I such feel. a big stigma. You know, St. Martin is on the front lines of climate change. Like St. Martin is a small island. What the people and the government need to acknowledge now is that we feel the impacts first and most severely, even though we contribute like less than 1% of carbon emissions. Like we are vulnerable to hurricanes, which are becoming more frequent and extreme. Like, I mean, Irma, you know, perfect example of this. Like literally a perfect, like we've already experienced how bad it can get. And it's like, okay, warning, that that's a red yeah. flag. 
Yeah, and, and and our dependence on food and and drinks and and energy imports, like all of it is imported. Tourism revenue is highly dependent on you know what the rest of the world's um, up to. Yeah, COVID just yeah, like and- completely paused that too. And so it's again, what do what do we do? So the question is, is like, right, it's like, how do we need to spend our, like, the question is, is we need to spend time on how we can better prepare for and increase our resilience to climate change and these external shocks like COVID-19 to achieve sustainable development. And we've already seen our neighbors do a very great job. Like Aruba has basically made its vision to be incredibly sustainable. And they were like, recognized by the United Nations and won a competition for their a hotel that is called um uh it's gonna come to me it's called Bukati and Tara Bukati and Tara 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 I forget but they won like being the most sustainable uh hotel in the whole world uh because they are carbon neutral so all of the carbon emissions that they emit they um offset through either alternative energy inputs or through, you know, the cap and trade program with buying carbon credits. That's awesome. And yeah, and they have this whole sustainable island strategy that they're implementing that's really aligned with their economic tourism, their economic goals, their tourism goals, and they're like, you know, developing what it is going, what is going to be uh, the future for for island nations, you know, to, to be sustainable in the age. And there are so many different opportunities for us to diversify our economy of, in sustainable ways. And I think we must focus that, you know, um, because we, need to we move are out of just being a tourism island. Like we're more than that. We have people that are extremely talented. St. Martin should have startups of its own, whether they be digital in nature or occupy physical space. Like it is 2021. You do not need an office building to get things up off the ground. I, and I do think our generation has definitely been showing and pushing and being really loud about what we care about, whether it be from you know, the Malay podcast to the work that you do, even like Say Less Is, like all of these orgs that are, I feel like are for people that are our age are really pushing and saying like, hey, we can be more than just a tourism island. Like we can generate content that the rest of the world will want to listen to or can then hear what our voice actually is and to say that we're more than just a place you go on vacation to like we can, we matter our lives matter like our voices our history our culture matters and even if you guys don't want to listen like we're gonna scream loud enough so that you do listen to us because we matter yeah like caribbean lives matter <laughs> And I have hope. I have hope because I see people like you. I see people, I see more people like you and me stepping up every single day. People bringing their unique skills, their ideas, their experiences, their resources to the table. And this diversity is such a major strength that we have that Simarchi is really building. And we all, the way I see it is like we all have these different pieces to this puzzle and they all matter. Like we need all of them. And Mm -hmm. 
And I do see, like, especially when I read your blog about the climate crisis, I see more people speaking up about the climate crisis and organizing with others. Like, you know, I've organized a couple of beach cleanups since I've been here, and I've met so many different communities that have reached out to me and said, like, hey, I actually organize cleanups with, you know, a few of my friends every other uh, weekend, and I would love to be more involved. Or I heard you on the radio, and I usually don't come to community events, but this sounded really cool. Like, I want to clean up our island like i'm seeing more and more people really really care and i think the island is gorgeous we should care like when you guys go on those hikes i'm like this is this is stunning like this is amazing like where else are you gonna have experiences like this like this is something worth protecting our island is stunning miss it every day every day i'm here i'm just like lord just when yeah. when it when am I going back? Please, somebody that, send yeah, me that, a plane ticket. Like <laughs> you are welcome to come back whenever you want. I'm trying to. I'm I, trying to. I'm just letting COVID, you know, take take a little bit of a chillax, and then I'll be right over. I'm trying to come in August. Like I'm ready to get Liddy and just be on my. I I love. Oh, I love Simarin. The food I can't. <laughs> well, Simarin's here waiting for you and a big shout out to you and and the already millions of people who are just working on you know bringing awareness and bringing light to this problem you are appreciated we're not alone and for anyone who's listening today right this is an open invitation to anyone who hasn't already joined on a cleanup please come show up we can't do this alone uh, we need you. Say Martin needs you, and and yeah, I think it's about high time we start start rallying our people. I'm feeling yeah. the energy and momentum. I, think, I feel I it think too. I, yeah, it's I like a, it. there's a change in the air. You know, I can't put my finger on it, but I detect a disturbance in the force. <laughs> and it's Gen Z. They're coming. They're coming for you. But how how can people get in touch with you, or like how can they find out about when a next cleanup might be, or like how they can if they can't for some reason find your ted talk where they can find you so they can get you know access to it because you should listen to it it is really good and very inspirational okay okay thank you thank you hersha i think the best way to get involved is to follow all of the organizations uh the the nature organizations environmental organizations on the island hit up their facebook page like their page, follow their page. We have Epic Environmental Protection in the Caribbean. We have the Nature Foundation. We have the Pride Foundation. You know, that's, I think, the most uh, active way to to get involved. And then to find me, you know, I definitely have Facebook and Instagram. I don't have yet, like, a platform that's, like, super open to, to kind of get in contact with me. But if you need me to help you build a website, I got you. Just just Ooh. let me know when and where, okay? We'll figure it out. We'll make it happen, oh. okay? Because, oh. like, oh. create that digital footprint. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. I really need to do that. <laughs> just hit me up um, whenever. I got you. <laughs> oh, damn, Mama. I feel so lucky. <laughs> um, yeah, I think right now Facebook is the best way to reach me. <laughs> Um, always Facebook and Instagram, I think are the best ways to reach me and follow the pages. Cause I'm actively posting on all of those pages and, and those organizations are actively posting of, you know, the help they need, the volunteering that they need. And so, 
Um, we also have other organizations like the St. Martin Development Fund that needs volunteers. If you want to get involved with uh, building the social resilience on the island. Um, also, the NRBP has been making great strides just in terms of building the social infrastructures, you know, here. Um, and so we just have a lot of a lot of great people, a lot of great organizations to to kind of see where their needs, uh, where there's a helping hand needed. Thank you, Harsha, so much for even like really using social media platforms through every single way, whether it's your blog, chat about podcast. I'm trying. I'm trying to just. And, and, and empower your organization that's really reaching people, your community in St. Martin. We really appreciate you. Got to scream that out oh, there. Oh, you going to make me you. cry now. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think you're really making a Aww. difference. You really, really are. You're so yeah. sweet. Well, I guess let's just end with that because, like, I'm, I don't know how to top that <laughs> off. Like, that is awesome. Another great episode on the Chatterbox. Follow us on Instagram at the.chatterbox 